Welcome to the Realities of College Recruiting Podcast, where our team of former college coaches, players, and MLB scouts tackle the most critical college recruiting topics. With guests including college coaches, MLB pro scouts, and industry insiders, we will empower you with the tips and strategies needed to gain an advantage in your college recruiting process. The Sports Force Podcast is powered by our partner, Five Tool Baseball. Okay, let's start the show. Uh, we got Coach Nicholas Enriquez. Um, he's got a, an incredible background as a former college baseball coach, you know, in the Ivy League at Dartmouth, uh, then on to San Jose State, Stanford, and a short stint, you know, helping out with Santa Clara University. So four Division One programs with actually very different um, recruiting approaches, you know, and academic requirements and just different types of um uh, you know, conferences and the whole experience. So, uh, Nicholas, glad to have you join us for, uh, for this episode. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate you having me. Awesome, man. Well, you've been putting some just amazing stuff out online and just built a, a great following of players, parents, coaches. Um, I guess the big question I want to ask, you know, as you've transitioned into now doing, you know, a lot of, you know, player development and hitting analytics and infield infielder development. Um, what kind of inspires you to continue to just serve the community and, and bring the knowledge that you do? Well, I think part of it was, um, you know, kind of like yourself, there was that itch to, to, to keep, you know, giving back and, and, and teaching, you know, because we, we were all taught by somebody at some point um, how to play, um, and it, it was something that that I wanted to kind of you know just help out. And a couple a couple people locally had said, "Hey, would you mind you know working with me a little bit?" And I was I said, "Sure, absolutely." And next thing I know, I started you know having some more people contact me. But a lot of it was just putting out information on on social media because I was thinking, well, there's got there's some stuff I've learned that you know before in college, you know I wasn't going to pass on that information because it was just you know it wasn't maybe appropriate. But now that I wasn't coaching. I could take that information, pass it off to people that might have an interest, and you know, if somebody might learn something, uh, then all the better. Hundred percent. And um, if you don't mind, kind of share a little bit of your backstory of how you got started. You know, with in college coaching. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, go ahead. So I started at uh, I, I played at Menlo College. Uh, Menlo College is in Atherton, California. Uh, and with with a pretty good long line of, of coaches that that either played there or coached there, uh, Rich Price at Kansas, yep. um, uh, coached there. Uh, Reggie Christensen, who's the head coach at Sacramento State, was a player. Um, his first year as the head coach, I was his assistant coach, um, and so I I started out there. Um, wasn't even thinking I was going to get into coaching. And my dad said, "Well, you should try it if if you get an opportunity." Um, you know, before you have a family. So I, I started coaching there, uh, coached two summers of summer baseball in, in Amsterdam, New York. And then um, long, long story short, um, uh, Reggie Christensen was the volunteer at Kansas. When he left to take a head coaching job, he had recommended me to, to coach Price to talk with him. Um, it didn't work out to, to, uh, to go and work with Rich, but uh, uh, there was a coach that, that called that was looking for an assistant um, named Bob Whalen, who was at Dartmouth. He called Coach Price and said, is there anybody that you did not hire but that you like? And he passed along my name and another person's name mm. and um, wound up uh, talking with Coach Whalen. 
we had some mutual friends having worked for a Stanford baseball camp together um, who called and said, you know, this is a guy that you should really take a look at. And uh, from the first time I sent uh, Coach Whalen and, uh, and uh, in those days a fax with my resume um, to the time I got in the car, it was two and a half weeks um, from the time <laughs> we first started talking to moving out there. So I moved out uh, for to New Hampshire for almost nine and a half years. I uh, wound up coming back to the West Coast uh, and coaching with Dave Nakama at San Jose State and then uh, moved on to Stanford for uh, Coach Marquis's last year. And I, that was my last year in uh, the uniform was 2000 and I think it was 17. Yep. Awesome. Yeah, you know, Coach Bob Whalen uh, recruited me out of high school. Um, wow. And uh, yeah, <laughs> he's been around forever. And I lo- love the guy. And he still gets out to San Diego, you know, where I live for for some early summer showcase stuff. So, um, and obviously you're you're based in northern Cal- Northern California, um, and relative to your kind of experience on the, on the coaching side at the college level, what what would you say were some of the I guess some of the mistakes that players and parents were doing relative to their recruitment process? Uh, that you even, you know, maybe even hear about today? I think that the biggest thing um, is just limiting their options. You know, everybody's, um, everybody in California is looking to play Division One in, in California. And when you look at the scope of, of college, there's so many options out there. Not not only um, Division One, but there's excellent Division Two, Division Three, and NAIA programs, not only in California, but the you know, the entire country. And I think a lot of people, you know, really only look at certain or limit their options. Uh, when you look at how many schools are actually out there, there's probably three quarters of the Division One schools are, are uh, east of the, the Rocky Mountains or east of Texas, really. Uh, so a lot of people, I think, don't don't open their eyes and their to other opportunities that are out there. And that's the biggest thing that I try to, you know, to try to pass off to people is that, you know, you want to get your information and your name out there to as many colleges as you can, because there might be a really good fit for you in the Carolinas or in New York um, that you might not even know of. And, you know, especially for me, when I went to Menlo College, I went there because um, they had a great um, uh, program, business program. Um, It was a small school that fit my, my, you know, the kind of person I was. And I had the opportunity um, to play. It wasn't like the coach was guaranteeing me anything, but those three things were lined up directly for what I was looking for. And, you know, those three things might have lined up with another school in Pennsylvania that I just didn't know about back in the day. But that's the, the kind of information I've got to pass out to parents is, and, and players is, you know, expand your horizons about other opportunities that are out there. Absolutely. Um, thinking about the, um, you know, looking at, Obviously, there's so many different summer camps and summer showcases that are out there. And you, you know, you worked probably the Stanford camp and a, and a bunch of other things. Um, when you're working with some of your players to get ready for the summer stuff, um, what are you trying to impress upon them, you know, in terms of saying, hey, you're going to start playing in front of some college coaches and you need to be ready here, here and here. And, you know, let's let's tackle this. I'm curious kind of how those conversations or what, what you see is the most critical. 
I think that the, the biggest thing is, is mindset. And that's something I, I try to preach to, to players as much as possible is that, you know, baseball in the grand scheme of things is a team game. Um, but when you really boil it down, it's, it's one-on-one matchups. Um, and I think in the summertime, you want to, you want to be prepared to, to do the, uh, you know, to play at your best. Um, most of the time, if you're a hitter, you're only going to see fastball. You might see a random breaking ball, but you need to be ready for the, the, the fastest pitch out there because not only are you trying to show show things, but that pitcher is trying to show things as well. So most of the time you're going to see, you know, fastball. So um, I want to get the guys geared up to, to face the, you know, the heater, the, the first thing. Um, you know, second aspect of it is I want those guys, especially when they play defense, I want them, and I talk to them about different, different areas to really focus on, is if you're an outfielder, how do you really make a name or show, you know, show yourself or catch a coach's eye? Um, you know, there were things that I always looked for in tangibles that I wanted, you know, to see that I try to talk to players about now. Um, when they're on the base paths, you know, things like that, I, there's certain there's certain little key aspects that I try to tell kids, hey, you know what, this is something that, that would catch my eye. You know, something that is really simple is, a lot of times uh, when you're playing in these showcases, if you walk, you go up and hit again. Well, they need someone to run. I would always tell guys, if that's the case, go and be that person that's, that's volunteering to go run the bases. Because A, mm-hmm. that shows that you're, um, that you're aggressive. And not just running the bases, but you want to be out there. B, if, if you're a player and you're always running the bases, as a coach, that, that sticks in your head. You're like, God, that kid was wasn't he just on base and you might forget that he was pinch running or whatever, mm. but you remember he was out there. And one of the, one of the uh, stories I go back to was back in, I think it was 2000 or 2001. I was at the area kill games and there was a, a chubby little player from Melbourne, Florida that kept running the bases. That was a little bit overweight. And I was like, why does this kid keep running the bases? Mm-hmm. And a scout with the Astros told me, you see that kid right there. He's one of the best, He's going to be one of the best hitters in the country. But you know what? He's showing that he has confidence in himself that no matter what his body looks like, he's going to go out there and run the bases. And that player was Prince Fielder. Mm. Uh, And that stuck in my mind because that was the one negative about him was that he was a chubby little kid that probably couldn't run. And he took those doubts away by always running. He would always try to steal Mm. a base. He would always try to go first and third. So that stuck in my mind and that's the story I tell players all the time now is don't be afraid to get out there and um, you know push the envelope a little bit that's an awesome story man I, I, I have not heard that one uh, yeah. about Prince but um, absolutely and then you know with with where things are relative to college baseball and kind of early recruitment and you know kids getting interest uh, at, at, at really young ages, um, what, what's your take on, you know, on that as, as you went through the process as a college coach yourself? Well, I think the biggest thing is anytime that a player goes someplace, they want to be at their, at their very best. Meaning yeah. if they have a problem with say they're a little sore in the shoulder or a little bit sore in a leg, you know, it might not be the best time to go to that camp or go to that tournament. Um, and I say that because, if your leg is sore and you're not running hard out of the box because you're trying not to pull a hamstring as a coach, I might not know that. And I sh- I'm 
happen to be there to watch another player and I see Johnny Jones, number 23, and he doesn't run hard, I just, in my mind, I'm thinking he's giving his best effort when in actuality he's trying to protect himself from an injury. So Mm -hmm. that's one thing I always try to caution players is if you're not healthy 100% to, to go full bore, then sometimes going to those camps or showcases can hurt you more than they help you. Um, because if, you know, you call a month later and say, Hey, I was at this camp and I look at my notes and I put, didn't run hard. That's, that's one thing I'll always remember because that's in my notes. So, you know, that's one thing I try to tell players all the time is make sure that you're healthy about it. Uh, the other aspect about it with the early recruiting is the same thing. Sometimes your freshman year might not be the best year to go to one of those camps because you're facing a guy that's maybe a junior in high school that's two years more developed than you are, and he's you know you're you're just not physically there yet. So it might not be the best time to go to that camp. Um, you want to go there when you're you know almost at the at your peak game. So maybe you know waiting till your sophomore year might be the best know the best time um Mm. you know but your freshman year i don't know if that's you know unless you're one of those you know elite players i don't know if that's the 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 right time to go to something like that sure yeah one thing i heard from a friend of mine that you probably know mark curtanian actually was we were we were talking two days ago and he was saying that um you know he'll do a talk to players and and parents and sometimes say you know that College coaches are not looking for you at a showcase, you know, to be amazing every play. Um, they're really just looking for flashes of what's possible um, yeah. to be able to understand, okay, if I can get a couple flashes out of a player, maybe even sometimes one flash with one one certain at bat, um, then there's enough to build on, you know, from there to at least um, – you know, put that player down as maybe a player to follow. And yeah, I think Mark, I think Mark hit it on the head is you want to see something that, that you can go, well, if he gets a little bit X, maybe a little bit stronger, or maybe gets a little bit more coaching, what could he be based off of that one, you know, that one kind of spark. And, you know, that's where coaching as a, you know, you have to really, you believe in yourself and what you can do and you see, uh, you know, a glimpse of something, you go, I can take that and make that into something a little bit better. Yes, for sure. And, you know, going back to your, your recruiting days and, and thinking about the different schools that you've been at, I want to just draw two parallels between two different schools. So we'll look at Dartmouth on the Ivy League side, and, I, and I'd like you to kind of paint the picture of A, how many players would be recruited and, you know, signed per year versus how many players you would actually see at various tournaments as a staff to um, how many players you would be maybe contacting or, or following, you know, all the way down to how many players would take a trip to a school and then how many players get offers and then how many players committed. So if you don't mind taking it, take us through the whole recruiting funnel um, from top to bottom with like, an Ivy League school like Dartmouth. Right. So when I was in the Ivy League, you know, it was there was no shortage of players that could play for us. That, that was that was the easy part. The hard part was and we would say it was just getting in the front door. Yeah. And you know, it was it was such a small number 
that we could actually recruit from. And when you looked at it from the whole Ivy League, we were all end up we ended up all almost always recruiting the same players. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, there would be one random kid that a uh, school would get, and you're like, "Where did they find this kid?" But for the most part, most of the kids were the same. Everybody knew about them, so we would the the process for us was trying to gather as many names as possible as early as possible to help educate them on the process. So we might not get a kid's um, SAT or ACT for a while, but we knew he was a 3.8 GPA. And what we were always trying to do is we were trying to provide information about, okay, this is the quote unquote um, average you know, GPA that, that gets in. Um, now, if, if you were a 2.8, probably wasn't going to happen but if you were you know a 3.4 3.5 with a with a really good course load of APs and whatnot even if the the SATs weren't there yet we'd still recruit you because there was as Mark said there was flashes of your mm-hmm. of potential and so there you know you'd look at somebody with four APs but he had a 3.5 GPA we're like okay well there's flashes that if when he takes that test he might, you know, he might turn out a, a really high score. So we'd still recruit you. Uh, we might put a, a little bit more of, a, of an emphasis on a kid that already has his SAT or ACT, um, mm. but you know that that wouldn't that wouldn't be a, a, a factor till later in the process. Now we might start out with, you know, a couple thousand names. Now we would recruit all those kids at different levels. You know, if if you only had a um, a PSAT score and a 3.4 GPA, but the PSAT was a little bit low. We might put a little bit less um, effort in, in recruiting you, but we would always try to provide information. Um, we would go out and go to tournaments and showcases and, and just games. Uh, we would rely on people like yourself and that, that understand what the, the, uh, the academic model of, of the Ivy League looked, looked like. And we would take, you know, if you said, hey, this is a really good player with good, you know, good academics and, you know, sort of thing, then we'd go, okay, well, this is, you know, this might be a good fit. Um, but we would also talk to a lot of people that, you know, hey, they've got, they've got uh, family from the East Coast and they're a 3.6 GPA. Well, you know, those people from the East Coast that have migrated for some reason or whatever back out to the West Coast, they have an appreciation and understand the difference between an Ivy league education and, you know, an education at a, you know, uh, I don't want to say something bad about another school, but someplace out in the West coast. Sure. Um, sure. And so though it was just a lot of getting information, um, and during the process uh, mm-hmm. of, of that. And so again, it was, you know, the play, the finding the players was, was the easy part. It was, it was finding the combination of the player and the academic uh, part of it. And then the third, the third area that we were always cognizant of was the financial part. Um, you know, the Ivy league doesn't offer athletic scholarships. They offer need based financial aid based on your family's, um, you know, income. So, you know, the family had to understand that, you know what, the, the front end, um, investment in their education is going to turn out a long-term dividend. So Mm -hmm. there were a lot of different, you know, a lot of different, um, factors that we that we uh that we would look at um and then when it came to visiting players um you know we would always encourage them to come and look at the school um you know on their on their own or as as, as much as they could 
and the the biggest reason for that was you know that showed that that they were serious about us and that they were going to make that investment you know to come out and, and and if it was to see other schools as well then then you know the more the merrier because as much as the ivy league is you know the quote-unquote ivy league all eight of the schools are different mm-hmm. um there are some that are in, in a you know a non-city setting like Cornell and Dartmouth and then you have some that are in the middle of New York City like Columbia and Harvard you know yep. they're all great schools but you know there were some kids that were a great fit um, at some of those others at some of the other schools but they just weren't they weren't a good fit at Dartmouth and not there wasn't anything negative about them it just wasn't it wasn't going to be a good fit for them there because it was a smaller environment mm-hmm. um, and then you know on any given year um, I don't think it's changed, uh, but the Ivy League had a roster limit of, um, of players that you could have. And usually our roster at, at Dartmouth was in like the 27 to 28 range. Mm-hmm. So if you take that over a four-year period, you're looking at somewhere between seven and eight kids per year that, that we were, quote-unquote, going to help support through the admission process. Now, when I say support... You know, it doesn't mean you're going to get in automatically. What it means is, you know, you're an Eagle Scout. You've got a 3.9 GPA. You've got a, a ton of AP courses. And the baseball staff says you're a pretty good player. It's just another way to help separate yourself from, you know, the from the, you know, 10,000 or some kids that, that apply. Absolutely. And I'm not going to do a deep dive on how the Ivy League has the academic index and the four different bands and that whole convoluted system that parents, uh, you know, will will only find out if kind of Ivy League recruiting opportunities come together. But uh, that's that's a whole different world. That's a whole Uh, other conversation. Yeah, absolutely. We we did a whole workshop on that, actually, like an hour-long video on breaking down how Ivy League recruiting is and all the different schools and and that four band system and how it works, you know, year over year. And just, um, it, it blew some parents' mind for sure. It's amazing. Um, you know, when we, when we did it, we would sit there and I mean, it was a, it was a numbers thing trying to balance everybody out. And, you know, the biggest thing is as a parent, you can't worry about what the other kids are doing. Just worry about, you know, what's best and what your, what your son or daughter is doing. Yes. And, you know, if, if you're looking for those high academic, you know, programs, I think for most players, it's keeping their options not only open to um, high academic Division One schools if they're a Division One caliber player all over the country, because you got other other schools. You know, Davidson's a great example of a of, of a school that you know a lot of families don't know about that could be a good academic fit if they're not you know, going to fall in line with maybe an Ivy program, an Ivy league program that they're looking for. Um, and, you know, but here's the reality that there's so few, what we'd call as elite academic division one schools that to your point earlier, everybody's competing, competing for a lot of the same talent. Um, and yeah, and that's a, that's a tough thing. You know, Davidson, their, their former head coach, Dick Cook was a guy that I knew really well. And a lot of people don't realize this. Davidson's produced some amazing baseball players. Mm-hmm. Pete Hughes, the head coach at Kansas. Mick Aoki, who was the head coach at Notre Dame. 
Brett Brady, who's the head coach at um, Columbia. And then they had a, a shooting guard that I think has turned out pretty good um, in the NBA name. I think his name is Steph Curry went to Davidson, you know. Oh, so, yeah. That guy, yeah, that guy. Yeah, he's pretty, pretty next, next level universe, all universe team. Um, all right, let's shift gears a little bit away from recruiting and just kind of dive in a, more on the player development. So everybody, you know, following dudes on Twitter that are hitting gurus, pitching gurus, whatever, um, you know, and I think sometimes families or players fall in love with, with certain things and tinkering with their swing all the time and trying to listen to who's the next guru with the good idea or, or the good drill. Uh, you mind just kind of cutting through the noise and saying, in your opinion, what are some of your absolutes on the hitting side? Yeah, I think I think you're right. There's a lot of guys that have great ideas out there. The, my my big absolutes are are balance, um, and timing. You know, mm. um, and th- that's a it's simple, but yet it's very it's very broad. The other thing is that I talk about is repeatability. You mm. know, if you have good balance, then you're you've got you've got a shot. Um, if if you've got balance, then there's a lot of things that are that are kind of in line. Um, timing, you know, you, you got to have, you know, good timing and some rhythm with your swing. Um, and the last part is just repeat, repeatability. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of guys out there, especially in the big leagues that, that have some, some funky stuff with their, with their swing, you know, with like Josh Donaldson, it's a, it's a little bit, you know, um, it's a little bit different than some people, but he's got really good repeatability. But the thing that a lot of people forget is the guy's a major league baseball all-star that's got thousands of swings under his belt. And he's learned how to repeat his swing with the mechanics he's had. So those are things that I talk to kids about all the time. And when I first start working with players, I'm like, let's just try to get as let's just try to get our swing to repeat itself as many times as possible. And mm. when you when you find a person that's got balance that can have good timing and they can repeat their swing, for the most part, they're going to be just fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I see one thing that is interesting that I don't think is being addressed enough is actually trying to understand how does the hitter actually see the baseball? Yeah. You know, are they, are they a hitter who picks up spin? Do they pick up more like, you know, tra- trajectory, you know, are right. they, getting er, you know are they getting early recognition with just even like ball flight and you know speed recognition and they have good depth perception um and then tailoring a swing or an approach to how that player's cognitive skills and eyes and mind body work together i think that's like a an area that is still not being explored enough uh, yeah. In terms of overall hitting performance, you mind yeah, kind of talking right, about that? I think you're right on that. I mean, there's a there's a drill that I've started working with players on where, you know, I take uh, for it's really kind of it's a simple drill, but it's one that that might be hard to understand over the over voice is that instead of instead of the the hitter actually seeing me throw from the L screen, I put a tarp in front of the L screen. And I tell the players, listen, all I want you to do is I just want you to worry about trying to hit the baseball when I throw it. So there's a there's a, a tarp. They can't see me, but they can see the ball coming out of my hand. And 
then all of a sudden they throw out all the mechanical stuff. Um, and, and the biggest thing now is I just have to see the baseball. So, and the thing I tell them is don't worry about the results. Just worry about seeing the baseball, um, as early as possible. And then what happens is all of a sudden they start compensating a little bit and getting a little shorter, uh, to the ball and Mm -hmm. they'll start hitting some, some pretty good pitches. And I'll say, well, what's the biggest thing that, that we took away from this? And they'll say, I just had to see the baseball early. I'm like, okay, well then I take the tarp down and now they can see me now that that timing can, can start to happen when it's more natural for them. There's Mm. less fear because now they see the whole picture and don't Mm. have to worry about just fighting to, you know, to see the ball. That's an awesome drill. That that is, that's kind of a complexity based, you know, drill, right. To uh, just, it's, it's tough. It's tough, you know, but you know, they have to, the other, the other thing I, the reason I do, and I don't do with every player is it's a trust drill because now they have to trust me. Number one, I can't see them, but they have to trust that I'm going to throw a strike or yep. throw the ball and not hit them. But two, they have to trust that, that I, and I'm showing them, Hey, you know what? Your swing is good enough right now, but all we have to worry about is just seeing the baseball. And I trust your, your mechanics enough. Now you have to trust yourself. And what, what the drill ends up doing is now they start saying, holy cow, my swing is pretty good. And I, I just need to trust what I'm doing. And the biggest thing is just see the baseball. Mm, yeah. You know, and I talk to some hitters from time to time, even though I'm not doing, you know, what you're doing with as much of the in-depth coaching and kind of really honing in on players, uh, player development roadmap. Um, mm-hmm. But I'll just say, I'll, I'll say something. They'll be like, oh, yeah, my, my timing was off today or whatever. And I'll, and I'll say, you know what? First of all, you know, timing is not something that you can just kind of as a, as a ball player that wants to play at the highest level, isn't just something that you kind of throw out there and say, oh yeah, I didn't have, I didn't have timing today. And, you know, that's why I had a bad day or, or, you know, it's really saying, how are you going to own the calibration of your timing so that you can have it show up on a very, very, very consistent basis And how are you optimizing your practice and your training and your drills so that you're calibrating your internal clock and understanding how your, how your mind and body are syncing up with pitches so that you're not falling into deep slumps and and saying, Oh, I just didn't have timing today. Like, can you, let's, let's look at how you can own your timing. So I'm curious when that drill that you mentioned is that's like a game changer for guys to develop trust. And with trust and yeah. with trust and timing, now you have a fluid, relaxed hitter. Um, and when you have a fluid, relaxed hitter, <laughs> then that 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 hitter can get on fire. Um, but I'm curious because um, you mentioned timing and balance earlier. Um, are there some specific, you know, drills or things that you look at to kind of challenge your hitters to say, like even just not telling them what pitch is coming or speeds or locations? I'm curious what you do. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of different drills and, and all these, you know, Andrew, when these are all stuff that I, that I kind of picked up over, you know, almost yeah. 20 years of coaching. So it's not like these are, these are drills that I was like, Hey, you know, let's try them right now. They're drills that I've worked with other players and other people's other players have showed me and, and I've seen that they've actually worked. So one, one of the drills and it's very, very simple and guys don't, don't think about it, but when we're in the batting cage, if I've got a portable mound, 
I'll throw off of a portable bound mm. because, you know, as many, as much as we hit, a lot of times what'll happen is we hit, you know, flat ground hitting and that mm. ball is coming as straight as possible. Well, how many times does that happen in a, in a, in a baseball game where a ball is coming flat to you? You're getting at an, uh, you know, some kind of an incline or deep decline, uh, throw. So mm-hmm. I throw to guys, um, there, um, I do, you know, I'm sure everybody's seen as a, it's a three plate variation where you scoot up and you get closer and closer, um, to the, the, the BP thrower. Um, mm-hmm. I actually put a drill online today with Twitter about how to, how to hit, um, an outside inside pitch. Um, and I always tell the players you're going to hit from all three plates, but you're not going to hit from the same place twice. Mm. Um, and, and because every pitch is going to be different. So mm-hmm. one of the things that I try to do is I try to make it as random and change, make the hitter a little bit uncomfortable every on every single pitch, because that's what's going to happen in the game. You know, most of the time those hitters are going to learn to time me or time their, whoever they're working with. Um, but how much better are they going to get? So I oh. want them. And I always tell the kids, I want you to fail when we're hitting. I, I don't want you to, to hit every single ball, you know, and, and walk out of there going, man, I scorched him today because at the end of the day, it's not about how well you hit me or whoever you're working with. It's how you hit in the game. So mm-hmm. I'm going to make them as, as uncomfortable as possible. Um, and one way you can do it as I do a drill where they get five pitches. And the reason I do five is because coach, coach Marquis, that was all he let us throw in one round of a hitter was five pitches. So I just kind of kept going with that. Um, but I'll say, okay, in this round of five, you're going to get uh, two breaking balls and you need to take the breaking balls and hit the fastball and vice versa. Maybe uh, you'll, you'll get three, three fastballs and two breaking balls and all you're going to be able to do is hit the breaking ball. But I don't want them to swing unless it's a pitch they can absolutely handle, you know, and that, that goes into another whole area. I think a lot of players, what happens is they, they train themselves to hit bad pitches. They swing at everything, especially in a practice setting. And what that leads to is it leads to in, in game time, they're used to swinging at pitches that are, you know, at their shoulder level off of BP pitcher and they hit it. And all that's doing is reinforcing to them, bad habits that you know what i can hit that pitch well when the game comes and you're facing a guy that has a little bit more velocity or a little bit of a maybe a breaking ball and you swing at that pitch it all that's doing is it's reinforcing that you know and you have a bad result and you're curious like why did i why did i not hit that ball well i hit it well in practice well in practice there's no distractions there's there's nothing that's coming at you that's really tough um and one of the, you know, an area that, that I think is it's crazy to do, but sometimes I'll play music and I'm, I'll play it a little bit louder when they're hitting because mm. now that's a distraction um, that the player has to kind of overcome. Mm. Uh, you know, the other thing I do is I use blast motion a lot. And what I, one of the areas that I, I've seen a huge difference in is, so it'll, there's a, there's a setting where you can actually hear your, your, um, your, or your, your bat speed. Mm. And most of the players are in a certain area. And then all of a sudden they'll swing at a pitch that's inside or high or, and they have to change what they've been doing. Well, then you start seeing bat speed go down and I'll tell them, okay, now that's a great example. You might've hit that ball well, but 
the difference of say three miles an hour in your bat speed is a difference between maybe that shortstop having to dive or get in front of that ground ball. Mm. And they sit there and they go, holy cow, I never thought about that. And, and that's part of the failure aspect that I, I try to talk to the players about when we work out is that's fine. I want you to understand that now so that when you get to the game, you understand what the difference in say three miles an hour on bat speed will translate to. Sure. Well, I think what we, we should do is uh, make this kind of a part one of a part two, um, you know, interview, because I think we can go deeper on a number of different subjects. And I'd like to hear from any players, any parents, any coaches that are listening, like, let us know, you know, for part two, what are some additional questions that you'd like us to tackle? What other topics would you like us to dive deeper in on? Um, I think uh, with Coach Enrique's, Enriquez's background, um, the player development uh, game plan and, and, and having, you know, a, a clear approach, uh, that's a, you know, really, a, it sounds like it's, it's very a progressive model um, in terms of stacking different learning. Um, uh, so whether the player's a younger player, you know, who's you know, high school or even younger, all the way up, you know, to professional players that you're working with. Um, it's being able to um, position someone for for ultimate success and feel as though, you know, they have an understanding so that they can start to coach themselves. And let, let, let's let that be the last maybe thing we talk about is, you know, the importance of players starting to feel their own game and, and really be their own best coach. Um, yeah, and that's yeah. something that, that I want the players to, to end up doing. You know, when I was in college, this was the, the philosophy that I had was that by your by the end of your sophomore year, you were that was the biggest areas for me coaching were your freshman and sophomore year. Because I thought at, at your junior year to your senior year, you were pretty much who you were. You might have a little bit, you might get a little bit better between your junior and senior year, but the fundamentals and the things that I wanted to put in place happen your freshman and, and your sophomore year and th those were the the biggest things that i wanted to do so that their junior and senior year it was more maintenance and that same mentality i take that into the, the what i do with with the players now is that anything we do in the summer and the fall and the winter time is going to be very different than what we do during the season i, I want the, the season to be about maintenance about um, you know, hey, I, I was I'm having a little bit of issues with the, the pitch that's away, that sort of thing. Now, obviously, if a, if a player calls and says during the season, hey, I need to help, I need some help, I'm I'm absolutely gonna you know go and diagnose and and make the best correction we can in a short amount of time. But you can see long term development by you know working with somebody over you know a couple of months, and that's where you can really see a lot of swing changes. So. Um, you know, for me, that's the biggest thing is, um, you know, just trying to get them to, number one, trust themselves. And number two, the drills that we do, they can take those to their practice setting. And that's one thing we talk about is I'll say, well, what do you when you hit in the cage? Do you have a coach there? Do they tell you what they want you to do? You know, no. OK, well, let's look at some drills that maybe you've done well and that it brought you some success and you can take those to your practice setting. And now, now you're really coaching yourself because now I can't, I'm not there six days a week. Um, um, but the drills will always be there six days a week. If you 
you know, if you follow the, you know, the, the, you know, the plan that we've put in place and, you know, I always encourage players, write stuff down, you know, parents, when you're listening to a, a you know, a podcast like this, write down things that you heard because we're all visual um, and, and we all learn things differently. Well, I forget stuff, you know, from five minutes ago. So I have to write things down. So, yeah, if you're a parent, uh, player, parent, coach who's listening in, um, comment, you know, below wherever you wherever you see this, whether it's a post on, you know, social media like Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or even LinkedIn. Um, and let us know, you know, what you thought about it, what additional questions you might have. Uh, you know, ultimately, we're here to serve um, and just glad to have coach on on for this call. And. And Nicholas, where, where can people find you, you know, online? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just share that please. So my, uh, my Twitter and Instagram is, is coach underscore Enriquez. And it's, uh, last name is E N R I Q U E Z. And my email is Nick at coach Enriquez.com. Again, it's E N R I Q U E Z. You can, you know, everything on there is it's, it's open. You know, I always encourage people to leave comments about, you know, hey, I, don't, I didn't understand this or whatever. And I post things like drills. I post articles that I see that are interesting, um, stuff about financial aid. You know, the other day I put on there, you know, uh, when this whole uh, coronavirus lifts, if, if it does, you know, here's the, the June testing day. You need to sign up by the end of our beginning of May. I think it's May 2nd for the SAT and May 8th for the ACT. You know, just as reminders to people, um, just to, you know, get information out there, you know, hey, here's the date for financial aid. You need to get your paperwork in, things like that. Yeah, the stuff he's putting out is ridiculously valuable. Uh, we're always retweeting, you know, a bunch of his stuff. So if you're not following and you're a parent or you're a player or even a coach, just you, you should like, it's, it's the biggest no brainer, but, um, thanks again for joining us, uh, and, uh, take care, man. And, um, look forward to, to talking again soon. And just, you know, during these times, just, uh, families first, as you know. Absolutely. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. Thanks for being part of the realities of college recruiting podcast and our partner five tool baseball. You can easily subscribe on iTunes and check us out online at sports force baseball for every past episode of our podcast. If you want to ask questions, share insights and recommend future guests, hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at sports force BB and Facebook under sports force baseball. Be sure to join us on our next episode of the Realities of College Recruiting podcast. And remember, your college decision isn't a four-year one, it's a 40-year one.